Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. David, after we've done UFOs every single week, except for vampires, we had, of course, Count Steiger, or Steigler. Right. As he Steiler? I don't know. I'm making that oh, up. That's creepy. All right. Vlad Steiger. After we had Vlad Steiger on the show, All right. and Vlad Steiger was talking about vampires and werewolves and zombies, and that was the only change of pace from UFOs. But today we're we'll talk also- about other stuff. Wait a minute. Sure. We talk about other stuff on the show. We don't just talk about UFOs. Of course, we had Bud Hopkins talking about art and the artistic right. world. Surprisingly enough, a lot of our listeners like that to hear the Absolutely. change of pace and to get a fleshed-out picture of what this man was all about. It wasn't just hypnotizing people and finding out if they were abducted. We need to do an, we need to do an episode on the disappearance of the Jewish deli because there's an article in the New York Times about how the Jewish delis are going away. That's and a conspiracy. This, that's a, it's a topic near and dear to my heart and belly. Well, I'll tell I you what, we have a pseudo-Jewish deli here in Arizona called Chompies. Oh. Oh. And they're doing very well. They're from the Queens area. You know, what kind of a name is Chompies? I don't know. They came out with this name, oh, back in, what, 1979 or something. It's the Borenstein family from Queens, went to Arizona, went to Phoenix, and they opened up this chain of stores called Chompies, and they also have this large bakery, and they sell product to everybody. All right. Let's but, cut right to the chase. Do they have full sour pickles, Gene? You're damn right. Come on. Like really crispy, good, full sour garlic pickles? Pretty good. Pretty good. Not quite. Not quite Second Avenue Deli. Yeah. You know, it's kind of suburban quality, but pretty decent. I think we should do an entire episode on paranormal food. What do you think? You know what? We've never done that before, and nobody's done that. And not even George Snorri. Snorri has never done paranormal delis. Well, he he once did an episode about the food particles that lived in his mustache for five years that became sentient beings. Well, and I they, understand they, that they're going to send his mustache to the Smithsonian for stra- under strange creatures after he dies. They're going to like embed it in Lucite. They'll put it right next to Charles Manson's hair clippings. Sadly, I, I sadly I have an item that my buddy Chuck Farnham gave me years ago. Because this is a paracast. So let's go right off the edge, man. I have an item that recently I found when I was while I was unpacking stuff. I found this thing. This is true. I have this this thing embedded in Lucite. It's like one of these little Lucite enclosure things. He brings this to me one Christmas. Farnham would show up with these weird things. And so he brings me this thing, and uh, it's got a hair, a human hair on one side. And the other side, it's got like a piece of fabric. So, I, Chuck, what the hell is this? Well, turns out the hair is one of Charles Manson's hairs. For real. And, and this is, I'm not making this up, and Farnham's not making this up. He really gets this stuff. And then you turn it around, and that piece of fabric is uh, from one of Elvis's scarves, apparently. So I have Elvis's scarf and Charlie Manson's hair together on a piece of lucite. Yeah, how many paranormal internet radio show hosts can make such a claim? That would be that would be only me. That's it. That's why we're unique. <laughs> Between paranormal delis and Charles Manson's hair, what could yeah. you ask for, ladies and gentlemen? How did we even get here? What we're, 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 we're you know this is this is such a detour, man. That's ugly. I'll tell you what, let's, let's kind of focus, as we were trying to do with Ray Stanford a couple of weeks back. <laughs> <laughs> you 
you know, nobody noticed I bailed. Well, actually, a couple people commented and said, gee, David got really quiet after that, uh, after Ray freaked out. Yeah, I got quiet, all right. <laughs> yes, you disappeared. You vanished. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes if you have nothing nice to say, just don't say anything at all, right? Well, you know what it is? If we could focus this guy, we could have a really interesting discussion Ray, about I, this. I've, I, I've had fascinating discussions with Ray one-on-one -on, -one on the phone, all right? So let's, uh, let me be just straight about this. I've had some great discussions with Ray. He's a fascinating character. I thought he was, was going a little off-tangent in that discussion. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'm at a point now where, you know, sometimes it is just easier to let somebody talk and just to, to pull back. It's like the Billy Joel statement, don't take you-know-what from anyone. Well, it's not even that. It's just, you know, you get to the point where, all right, the guy's got content that's pouring out of him. Just step back and let it happen, and then you can kind of assess the pieces later on, really. I mean, that's sort of my take on it. Well, if we had a 10-hour show, it would have been great. Well, yeah. And anyway, anyway, we are going to go off on another tangent, a tangent about... Life after death, spiritual communication, what is this all about? What is Spiritcom and how do we get a hold of Dr. Stephen Rourke? Well, he got a hold of us, actually. Okay. Because of a, there had been a thread on the forums about this. Some people were curious about this. And somebody came on and basically uh, started bad-mouthing Rourke because he feels that, I think, and we'll determine this in the discussion we have with him and just coming up in a few moments, but... It looks like he determined that the Spiritcom thing was silly and it was a bit of a sham. At least that's what I that's what I get from reading some of his materials. So we'll find out whether or not that's the case. But then he got attacked on the forums by someone who is a proponent of the Spiritcom thing. So he got in touch with us um, about that. And then actually I called him up on the phone and we talked. And it seems like the guy is an interesting character who spent a, maybe what I would classify as an, an inordinate amount of time researching this topic and uh, and this device and related stuff. I mean, we've never really done a show on EVP either, electronic voice phenomena. Um, and it's a really interesting topic that I've had some concerns with. So I think, you know, with this episode, we can actually get some real meat on the table about this and whether or not uh, the possibility of capturing some sort of uh, communication like this, some sort of voice communication from the continuum is even possible. And by the way, we're going to have the audio clips that he has evaluated. We're going to present yeah. them unedited with mm -hmm. all the hiss and noise and background stuff. Nothing yep. manipulated by all our digital wizardry here. And I don't nope. even know how I said that word without flooding. We're going to have all that happening. And we'll hear from Dr. Stephen Rourke coming up next on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right. You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. This offer only good for USA listeners. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at the powercast.com. That's news at the powercast.com. 
And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You hear it on TV. You hear it on radio. Cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days, but the real question is how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call 1-866-596-6134. That number again, 1-866-596-6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two Gs. Goldbug.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Well, off the beaten trail this week, at least a little bit, we have uh, Dr. Stephen Rourke, who actually contacted us a while ago about a thread that was going on on the Paracast forums re- regarding the Spiricom, a spiritual communication device. Stephen, how did you get involved in this topic? I mean, you've obviously devoted a lot of time and effort to looking at this stuff. Why? Uh, it actually goes back to a book that was on my grandfather's bookshelf when I was a kid. Uh, I was kind of a voracious reader, and I picked this thing up, and I, I thought for the life of me that it was a fiction book up until I'd been in college. It was called Voices from the Tapes by uh, Peter Bander, Drake uh, Publishing out of England. And uh, it was this fantastic tale of, you know, Catholic Church hierarchy involvement in the uh, advancement and even condoning of, you know, this kind of technological mediumship, what they called the mediumship of the tape recorder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even as a kid being uh, just a little guy being raised Catholic, you know, this 11-year-old reading this book, I, I knew that this had to be fiction because, you know, Ouija boards are bad. How could mediumship of the tape recorder be good? So I come later to learn in college, you know, having many of these open-ended kind of late-night discussions that someone says, you know, there's this thing called EVP in this little character named Raudova. And I said, now, wait a second. That sounds like the Raudova I read about in this other fictional work. Uh, so I came to I came to find out that it was, if not necessarily a legitimate discipline or field of study, it certainly was an area of inquiry being looked at for a long time. In reality, it wasn't fiction. That's how I got my start. Now, what um, what is your degree in? I mean, give us some, some give us some of your technical background. Well, it's an education research degree, which a lot of folks would say, well, what right does that give you to look into EVP? I would remind people that there's no such thing as a doctorate in parapsychology. There is no such thing as an EVP uh, research doctorate. So you almost have to take the folks from academia who are interested. Um, and you might even say an EDD. This is not to put down anyone, you know, with a PhD, but you might say an EDD has got a level of um, complexity that goes a little beyond a PhD in many ways. You know, PhD is a philosophy doctorate, whereas an EDD, you must perform actual research in an educational setting 
then report that research. So it must be a study you perform yourself, whereas you could sit and do a Ph.D. and never leave your room. You could uh, completely refer to the works of others. It's not to say my thesis was weak or anything. I had 250 citations, but my point is I know the norms and protocols of good research. I know what watered-down research is. I know what research is when you have to deal with the realities of the setting, such as education. It can't be a pure experimental design. Uh, so I take what I know about research design and the scientific method, and I attempt to apply that to something I'm interested in, namely EVP and the ultimate extension of EVP, the Spiricom story or mystery, which is often referred to as the best case example of real-time communication with the dead, which, if you think about it, is the point of EVP, according to most of its advocates. So that was a good place to start. Right. We've you know, we've never really devoted an episode of the show to this topic uh, specifically, but I've brought up in the past questions about the technological approach into EVP. One of the things that I've always noticed is that it appears that people who, who tend to take recorders out into the field to do these recordings, for some reason, Stephen, they always go with these really inexpensive, like voice recorders, things that, you know, these mini recorders that have an extremely uh, compromised frequency response that are not designed to deal real well with all sorts of crosstalk noise. And these tend to be the units that they take into the field. And and that's that's kind of always surprised me. And at one point we had... um. What's his name? John Zaffis? Is that was that his name? Uh, uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's him. Yeah, we had Zaffis on, and I started to you know sort of question him about this about standardization of equipment for doing mm. EVP work, and he got he got quite frankly very hostile, saying, "Well, you know, we we, we have limited budgets, and we're not technologists, um, so there's no such thing as standardization." I said to him, "Yeah, but you've got like the again these really cheap." low-quality, very compromised frequency response devices, um, gee, you've got, at this point, for $120, you can go get a Zoom H2, which I've written about on the forums. I've actually recommended that people go buy this. A very high-quality field recorder with real frequency response, with really uh, you know sensitive microphones. And interestingly enough, when people use that device, they seem to report a lot less occurrences of EVP. Oddly. Mm-hmm. So what's with the low frequency devices? Is this is that basically how they end up getting a lot of this material? Well, I think it is, and uh I, I state that in a very cautionary way because I've had experience with people immediately throwing out the, you know, baby with the bathwater here when I say, you know, ninety percent of this, probably more, and this is a rough estimation, is just what you said, very mundane explanations, crosstalk, crappy recorders picking up different sorts of frequencies. And I don't, I, I honestly can't explain it. These, uh, these recorders you're discussing are available through any, like, a musician's friend or music one, two, three. Sweetwater, They're pretty cheap. Yeah. yeah, Sweetwater Sound. I mean, these things, they're so inexpensive. I have no idea why someone would quite intentionally go out with substandard equipment, unless it's not about the equipment. It's about this social aspect and this titillation and the thrill, which is, you know, it kind of embodied in the term ghost hunter, which, which right. to me, I, I, I don't identify with at all. I have no idea what that's about. 
You're not a big fan of the Ghost Hunter show? <laughs> well, the show itself is one thing. Um, what it spawned in the way of a, you know, weekend skulking about uh, graveyards and all this, it, to me, you're going into a graveyard at night means you're fulfilling a given expectation of communication with the dead. It means you're tainting your results at the outset. So to me, it's highly problematic on so many levels. You almost have to throw that evidence out if they're using, you know, that sort of standard of confirmation of a belief system along with crappy technology. It almost seems like uh, why have that in the data set? You know what I mean? Absolutely. Now, yeah. there's something you said, though, that's really interesting because when we, when we talk about these things on the Paracast, we always identify that a vast majority of you know, pick your sandbox in the paranormal world, um, a vast majority of the stuff is junk. But in all of that noise, there is signal. And so what you've just implied as well is that there is some compelling evidence floating around, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I, I agree. And in fact, in my initial communication with you, I think I mentioned that there's you know, a great deal of parallel, or, or at the very least, you know, there's some analog between this EVP paranormal catch-all and this business of, uh, of UFOs, least of which is what you just mentioned, how you have to distinguish, you have to parse, and somehow get down to the pith of it. And this is, this is the first step, not the last step. Sounds like our motto here, separating signal from noise. That's right, yeah, which is, of course, part of the appeal. Your approach is one of intellectual honesty, and you ask tough questions, and, of course, I'm sure you've been on the receiving end of the Looney Tunes, which come out of the woodwork, oh, seeking man. only to confirm their predetermined beliefs and uh, attack anyone who asks them to think about their own thinking. Oh, yeah, and we continue to be under attack, and actually, whenever we even say we're under attack, then we get attacked for stating we're under attack. <laughs> yeah, that's great, isn't it? <laughs> You know, and what makes it worse is actually one radio show out there that I refuse to name, and I won't name the host either, who claims we're constantly harassing him. But we never <laughs> mention the show. We don't never mention yeah. that show in the forums. We don't mention that host in the forums. And you kind of wonder, well, maybe that person wants us to mention him. He is so insecure that, no, then he's going to say we said he was insecure, but we're not mentioning his name, so who is it? What are you going to do? Now, let, let, let's, so let's get back to the topic, because we can go down that Avenue and get lost for a while, and then we're we're mm. we're, we're we'll be uh, charged with being too self-involved because um, <laughs> we just can't win with this. All right, that's right. So basically, Stephen, um, this whole thing about the Spiritcom. There had been a thread on the Paracast forums, people mm. asking about it. Could you could you you know for people who don't know anything about this, could you give us a brief history of what the Spiritcom situation is? Sure. Uh, in, in brief, people don't realize the history that the Spiritcom is anchored in. Essentially, um, Spiritcom can be shown through research, you know, simply doing like an open literature search. It can be shown to have ties back to what people think is the birth of instrumental transcommunication or ITC, which is kind of like a, uh, you know, it's, it's like EVP, only with different technologies and varied technologies. And there was a Scientific American article in 1926 called Edison's Attempt to Communicate with the Dead. You might have even heard folks like advocates of everything from the Franks box to the uh, to something now called the Digicom, which even has a similar you know title to that of Spiritcom, all claiming that it's kind of anchored historically in the fact that you know if it's good enough for Edison to try, you know we might as well give it a shot, and the. Founders of Spiritcom actually 
you know, stated this uh, quite explicitly. They said that, you know, Edison's attempt to communicate with the dead legitimizes our work to some extent. Now, Edison's article, people don't realize, reporters back then, even in 1926, met the same deadline pressures as everyone else. This article came out around Halloween, so the picture I get from a careful read of the article is not actually, you know, that Edison was building a machine. He was stating things in hypotheticals and what-if responses, and the reporter probably framed the article in such a way as to have an appeal around Halloween, because mm-hmm. mediumship back then was, you know, spiritualism was all the rage. Right, right. Yeah. So keeping that in mind, as we go forward, it's that kind of shoddy research which underpins Spiricom. They also referred to the works of Routova, which is, we haven't gotten into that, but the Routova research is highly problematic in many levels. So Spiricom actually, from about the mid-1960s to the early 1980s, research on the development of a technological means of communication with the dead. So this is beyond Ouija boards, and they were hoping beyond mere cassette recorders. This research was conducted by the MetaScience Foundation Incorporated. And George W. Meek was the president. He's a, He was a self-made um, wealthy guy with a couple of patents to his name, some corporate ties. And William J. O'Neill, a self-described psychic and electronics engineer, supposedly developed a device that facilitated two-way conversation with the dead. They called it SpiraCom for spirit communication. And the project was officially defined as, and I quote from the cover of the SpiraCom technical manual, defined as, quote, an electromagnetic etheric systems approach to communications with other levels of human consciousness. So when you kind of deconstruct that long subtitle with a pseudoscientific kind of sound to it, what essentially their take was that personality survived death, and they were going to find a way to speak with some of those personalities while in the living. Now, just, just for technical nerdy's sake, I want to make sure that people understand that uh, we're not talking about the infamous audio engineer Joe Meek, who's very well known in uh, recording circles for a lot of the gear that he helped develop. We're not talking about that Meek. This is a separate Meek that we're referring to. For those uh, listeners who I know are audio nerds, you probably heard the word, you heard the name Meek and went, what? You mean Joe Meek is involved in this? No, you're talking about George Meek, a, a completely different person. You're correct, yeah. All right. So just just for technical, just for technical sake. Now, we're talking about uh, an attempt to create a technological device to essentially what supplant uh, a company the kinds of spiritual communication that mediums claim to have been doing for a long time. Well, I would suggest it was to verify it. Mm, rather than supplanted. And this is important because I've had unfettered access to the primary source archives of the MetaScience Foundation Incorporated. I've taken the research study so far that I went and contacted the current president of the MetaScience Foundation, whom was bequeathed the entirety of the MetaScience archives, every scrap of paper, every piece of machinery from Bill O'Neill's lab, every component that made up every version of the Spiricom is in an airplane hangar in Florida. 
And uh, this individual who is only looking for the truth, rather than shoo away someone who, quite frankly, I do give a hint uh, of an odor of a debunker, at, uh, you know, on the outset of it, because I'm looking for, you know, the real truth of the matter. I'm not just selecting evidence to confirm the Spearcom story because I like it. So uh, despite that, he gave me unfettered access to the archives. And in turn, I've been digitally transferring everything and posting it up on the web on SpearcomStudy.com. Little by little, it's all being transferred. And in those archives, I found more materials dealing with clairvoyance or uh, this kind of this kind of hokey channeling, you know, where someone changes their voice a little and puts on a ham-fisted acting job. There are literally thousands of cassettes where Meek would painstakingly analyze these for details that might corroborate some other detail on a tape. Um, so he was very much down the rabbit hole. So I think it was about confirming their predetermined beliefs about this possibility, not supplanting it. Now, you know, when you start to look into the Metascience Foundation, I mean, it's funny when you brought up Edison's name because I thought, well, at some point they're going to bring Tesla up as well, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, he's and in the mix, yes. <laughs> you're correct. <laughs> and boom, uh -huh. there it is. But, and when you, you, you look at this kind of stuff, you, you come to understand that very few of these people, for example, have ever read Tesla's autobiography. It's fascinating to me because at one point, and, and Gene, chime in, you'll remember the name, was it that guy, Ralph Ring, who claimed to work with Otis T. Carr? Um, oh, yes. This is in connection with Otis T. Carr, who claimed that he had taken developments from Tesla to build Flying Saucer. The whole thing about that, when uh, I heard this interview with Ralph Ring, and he was talking about how Otis T. Carr had said to him, oh, you know, I spent all of these years working with Nik Nikolai Tesla, who was an incredibly humble man. And I thought to myself, you know, anybody who knows anything about Tesla and his life knows mm. that the very last way anybody would ever describe him would be as humble. He was, yeah, a, he was about as humble as Donald Rumsfeld. There's just like, like not, not an ounce of humility in the guy. So, you know, when you, when you hear about Tesla and some of the really advanced work he was doing, I mean, the guy did do some stuff, which to this day has not been replicated, really, truly hasn't been replicated. But when people start bringing up Tesla as uh, having done work to communicate with the dead or to create these death ray beams, it's just you start to really delve into Tesla's actual research that's on hand, and you find out that so much of this stuff has just been amplified from nowhere. You know, maybe it is. I'm just going to throw this out as a crazy thing. We always talk about film connections. There was a film in the 1930s with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi called The Invisible Ray, and you wonder how that might have been influenced by these prevailing yeah. rumors about Tesla at the time. There does seem to be a bit of a... Uh programming of the public mind by some of this uh, science fiction. It's absolutely true. It's interesting how it plays in. So as far as this, this Spiricom device, I mean, what kind of technological underpinnings are they claiming to this? How did this thing supposedly work? It was essentially quite technologically black box. You know, it's very there's there's a great deal of technological opacity. It wasn't it wasn't very transparent is a better way to put it. Um, and the reason for this is probably quite obvious because O'Neill, being a self 
described, electronics engineer does not make him so. There's the additional problem if you had offered schematics, let's say, you know, mm-hmm. detailed down to the circuitry, there'd be a problem with people kind of uh, challenging your work at some level. So if you leave it black box, your claims can essentially go unchallenged. But I can tell you what I do know about it. It was essentially a, uh, well, now we're discussing the Mark IV device, which is important because this is the device in a series of six, which supposedly uh, facilitated this two-way communication with the dead. By the way, the dead person that the supposed communication took place with was... um, a discarnate being, a deceased NASA scientist, according to many who've written about it, and William J. O'Neill and George Meek himself both claimed this individual is named George J. Mueller, Dr. Mueller, and they used, again, the Mark IV Spiricom. Now, the Mark IV device, quite different from its predecessors, consisted of 13 audio oscillators, each tuned to an audio frequency between 131 hertz and 701 hertz. This was, by the way, the reasoning was uh, supposedly that was to approximate the uh, tone range for an adult male voice, should uh, mm-hmm. discarnate being require, you know, some approximation of a voice well, box. Wait, now, wait a minute. What was that frequency range again? Uh, yes, I'll give that to you. It was... Uh, each tuned to an audio frequency between, so this is, again, a span of 13 uh, intermittently spread between 131 hertz and 701 hertz. That's all very low frequency. You know, they were claiming that this was the sort of nominal frequency for a male voice. That's right. This is, again, Uh, yeah, you're you're seeing part of the problem here. Yeah. yeah, no, that's that's way too low frequency. When you, you talk about the mid-range tones of a human male voice, we're getting into the 2 to 4 kilohertz range. That's way higher. You're talking about stuff that's, well, that first frequency is kind of, you're getting down to something, not quite what a subwoofer would be hitting, but, you know, you're getting into pretty low frequency stuff, certainly not what I would consider to be within the, the range of a normal male human voice. Maybe it is, David, that when you die, you become a base in terms of your... That's right. Everyone voice. goes Barry White. Yeah. Okay, you become Barry White. We all die and become Barry White or Isaac Hayes. Hey, neighbors. The old way to meet for business is over the phone or in person. The new better way is to meet clients and colleagues online with GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting is like meeting in person, but less time-consuming and less expensive. Start your meeting with just a click. Everyone can see your computer desktop on their computer screen, so they can follow along as you move from page to page. You can use GoToMeeting to host a sales presentation, a product demo, or a training session. You can collaborate on documents by sharing your screens. Our listeners can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. That's a month of unlimited online meetings free. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with opportunities to stretch out and talk. We are talking to Dr. Stephen Rourke. The subject is communication, or lack thereof, with people who have died. 
David. Well, okay, so they have these 13 oscillators, and theoretically, uh, Stephen, they somehow these oscillators are what some kind of evenly spaced harmonics. I mean, yes. What's the uh, what's this, right? Yeah. This this is the presumption, and in addition to the 13 tones, which I suggest once upon hearing the audio clips will will easily discern that these tones were essentially audio camouflage for some other hinkiness that might have been going on. But nevertheless, those are the 13 tones. There was also a radio transmitter tuned to uh, 29.57 megahertz, although this varied somewhat by Neil's own account. A radio receiver tuned to the same, whatever it might have been, some approximation of 29.57 hertz, and a variety of other equipment uh, that really, I have to say, just other equipment, because it may or may not have been a part of the Spearcom apparatus, such as an artificial larynx device. Mm. And I, I bring that up because it's really the central, it's the central evidential point in my, in my argument that there was this artificial larynx device involved. Um, I have every evidence that O'Neill was in possession of one, and you'll find it quite interesting that the audio of the Spearcom conversations with a supposedly deceased NASA scientist sound awfully like a slightly misused, not properly used, artificial larynx device. So like people who, you know, you, you see those, uh, you've seen it, I guess, on TV and in documentaries, and I'm, I'm actually thinking of a, of a character in the Blues Brothers movie, in the original Blues Brothers movie. You're talking about that, I, I don't know, I don't remember the name of the device, the thing that they put up to their throat to talk. What is that called? Uh, well, it's called a, um, well, Some let me see, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually failing on that, too. I'm only remembering the name of the operation. It's called a laryngectomy, so it, it'll right. come to me. Yeah. But there's, it's like it's like a little resonator, essentially. Oh, I'm sorry, electrolarynx. What am I thinking? Electrolarynx. Yeah. All right. So That's, it's kind of yeah. like a little mm -hmm. electrically powered, uh, essentially a, a, a resonator. Yeah, essentially it's an oscillator. Yeah, that's it, an, an oscillator and an amplifier. All right. So, uh, you know, and, and for, okay, and so for people who are, are not into audio, an oscillator basically is a piece of circuitry that generates tone. It's different, right. let's say, from, from a filter. A filter is used to constrain the frequencies of a tone that, let's say, comes out of an oscillator, then you have an amplifier. I'm thinking of, you know, traditional analog synthesizer architecture where, you know, the oscillator is basically the thing that generates the bass waveform, the bass sound, and then it's kind of sculpted from there. So the Spiritcom device, you know, as you're describing it, has these 13 oscillators, and these are basically tone generators. Yeah, you're correct. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Yeah. And in fact, uh, it needs to be mentioned, since we're on the issue of the problematic aspects, the Frank Sumptions individual, the, the maker of the Frank's box, he was kind enough to write to me, and uh, he took issue with some details of the Spiritcom himself, which is kind of interesting that an individual making a sort of modern-day Spiritcom, although he contends it's not intended for that, he says that the Spiritcom used a 150-ohm, 100-watt resistor, and he's not just pulling this from thin air. You can hear on the Spiritcom tapes that O'Neill is having this conversation, being advised by the deceased NASA scientist to use these particular components. And Frank Sumptions says that this doesn't make any sense, and I quote, as Spiritcom was presumably transistorized, you wouldn't need a 100-watt resistor. It would be as big as your arm. If you did, <laughs> Stephen, you do have a whole collection of audio recordings that you assembled right, for yeah. us 
that covers some of this. So maybe at some point in time here, we can start to listen to this and get a perspective of what's really going on. Yeah, you know what? You're you're correct to remind me of that. I often, and you guys probably have this uh, happen to you too, you think a lot of people know things that maybe they necessarily don't because you spend a lot of time with it yourself. Right. And I don't think the folks maybe know the supposed claims of George Meek and, uh, you know, who this Dr. Mueller was. So if we listen to track one now, we could perhaps anchor the remainder of the conversation in that context of hearing George Meek himself, again, the founder of Metascience, you can hear him introduce the Spiritcom device itself and the audience to Dr. Mueller. In 1981, my colleague William O'Neill and I had more than 20 hours of two-way voice communication with the American scientist, Dr. George Jeffries Mueller. When we talked to Dr. Mueller via electronic equipment in 1981, he had died and been buried 14 years earlier. Yet it was Dr. Mueller's astral or etheric body with which we were talking. His superb mind, memory banks, personality, and soul were just as alive as when he had been directing a large staff of scientists in the U.S. space program. Yes, so that was George Meek introducing the Spearcom itself from a documentary and almost publicity reel they had sent out, introducing Dr. Mueller. You heard the direct mention of how he's, you know, the same Mueller that headed up a space program and... uh, uh, the, the folks heard the claims. Those were the claims of the Metascience Foundation, and those are the claims that were publicized at a 1983 Washington Press Club event where yeah. they unveiled to the world the claims of Spiricom, and actually track two will present to folks a about a one-minute selection from what was called the Spearcom promotional tape, which was actually handed out on, on a long-play LP format to the press at that uh, press club event in 1983. So folks could then hear what the Spearcom tape itself, the supposed two-way communication with Mueller, sounded like. Now, I, I just turned the camera, TV camera on, sir. I said I just turned the TV camera on. You never know, Doctor. Yes, I understand, William. All right, now, very well. Now, let's get on with this. And what I suggest, William, is that we disregard <clears throat> this audio project. Audio project? Yes. In your words, spirit on. And get on with the television aspects. Oh, I see. Yeah, I see. How much better it would be. Not only to be able to speak, but to visualize the subject you were speaking to. You understand, William? Yeah, I understand. Just a minute, sir. Just a minute. So that was actually what I believe was newly discovered Spiritcom audio, because the clarity is highly advanced over, like, the Spiritcom stuff that's available on the web ordinarily. Yeah, I know I, think, I was I saying was- to David when I first previewed this. And I guess you'll recognize the connection because David and I remember those years. Maybe I do more than he does. Peter Frampton. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, mm-hmm. what do you mean you more than me? Listen, I owned an Electroharmonics Golden Throat resonance box. And basically the idea behind that and what, what you're referring to is uh, the, the Peter Frampton talking guitar. And really what, what that is about is you have a device that's essentially a high-frequency driver takes the audio that comes in, in this case, Franton's guitar, breaks it into a few different frequency bands, pumps some of those bands' audio up a plastic tube into the human mouth, 
the human mouth then becomes essentially a resonance chamber, and that gets spit back out and amplified. And right, it, yeah, the oral, the oral cavity then does all the modulating, right. yeah. Right, mm-hmm. right. And so what that spirit con thing sounds like, you have this, this uh, I'm not going to guess what frequency that carrier signal is. You have like this base carrier signal that's essentially being modulated, it's being uh, uh, amplitude modulated, by what is actually making the voice. And that actually is an audio technique that uh, in its advanced form is called vocoding. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. They're claiming that this is uh, essentially someone speaking from uh, from beyond the grave. Now, an interesting thing I just noticed about that one clip and some of the other clips I listened to, Stephen, mm-hmm. it, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the supposed disembodied voice never seems to be talking at the same time as O'Neill, right? Oh, yeah, you're correct. In fact, in the um, <laughs> in all of the hours from every possible variety of source, I'm talking VHS cassette, broadcast one-inch reel, reel-to-reel, audio cassette, I've analyzed uh, every possible version of magnetic and other media that's come my way, and I have yet to hear those two voices speak at the same time. The only mm-hmm. time they speak at the same time, I'll have you note, and I did provide an example for the folks who say, oh, there are times when they speak simultaneously. The only time that occurs would be, let's say, track eight, where it's from what I call the new Spiritcom audio, where it's quite clear that O'Neill and Mueller complete each other's sentence. They complete each other's sentence, possibly speaking at the same time. Well, that, mm-hmm. of course, that argument is false on its face if you have a device which is activated by the proximity of O'Neill's voice. Or, if uh, some of the researchers are correct, like Dr. David Rivers, who replicated the Spiritcom effect using an electrolarynx device in front of his lips, this would have been easily done by O'Neill by simply moving his head slightly left toward a microphone, then slightly right, and simply mouthing, again, this is not to make any vocal utterances, simply mouthing what he wants to be spoken. And again, that audio droning you hear, which is quite grating, that mm. would drown out nicely in the background of 13 tones. So we should listen to number audio 8 cam- now, right? Yes, we should. Okay, here's number 8. Well, I'll tell you what, sir. Why don't I shut the system down, switch over to this other RF generator, and see if it's stable now, sir. Yeah, the oh now, boy, oh boy. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds there, and, and and I'd have to be looking at this in a in a piece of audio um, editing software, software where I can yeah. actually see the waveform. But mm-hmm. it sounds like what's coming on the Spiritcom is almost an echo of what he's saying. Yeah, it's um, it could be, but I'm actually contending that O'Neill's setup would have had to have been one where the electrolarynx device was poking out or somehow set up freehand in front of him, and he would simply have to turn his head left to speak and then right to uh, put his lips in proximity of the electrolarynx and use his oral cavity, again, as a modulator of that of that grating buzz everyone hears, thereby making the Spiritcom voice effect. And what's important to know is that O'Neill was a ventriloquist. Uh, this is a point that should not be wasted on folks. Um, I have this on good authority by O'Neill himself, by really? Meek, 
Oh, yes. Oh, yes. By Meek in his own book, Attend Your Own Funeral, I believe it's called. Uh, and, of course, O'Neill's many discussions of his days uh, in Cincinnati doing a children's show with puppetry where he would use his ventriloquist skills. Something else people need to know, and I'm not, I'm not all about just assailing the character of O'Neill, but it's important these facts be put into the same free and open market of ideas and opinions related to Spiritcom. O'Neill was also a schizophrenic. So what we have is essentially a schizophrenic with a ventriloquist skill set making these claims while in possession of an electrolarynx. I can document everything I've just said, and it is documented on SpiritcomStudy.com. By the way, we do have a link to SpiritcomStudies.com with your name. So those of you who check on the PowerCast.com site, just click on his name, and you get the information. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Dr. Stephen Rourke joining us. We're talking about Spiritcom, and even though it sounds like these people just felt too much in love with the vocorder, the device used by Peter Frampton, they were using. Uh, no, no, he didn't use. A, no, no, no. Frampton didn't use a vocoder. He used a voice box. Okay. Vocoder is a different device. Sorry, June. I have to go a little technical on you. Well, and, whatever. And I have to say, uh, uh, Stephen, by your description of O'Neill, sounds like he'd be really fun at parties with a few drinks in him. I don't know. He sounds yeah, like. Yeah, that's a, the thing. I mean, it's this is kind of in one way. It's very hard to do because these are endearing characters. I mean, Meek, you heard him. He's just kind of a, a sweet old codger, kind of looking for some proof of an afterlife as he faces his. His own, you know, aged reality. O'Neill, this quirky, kind of offbeat mystic, you know. I mean, these are all pretty cool guys, but it doesn't change the facts. Well, let's get right to the to the heart of the question here. I mean, so they, they claim that they're in communication with this deceased NASA scientist. Mm-hmm. Okay, that would mean that NASA scientists like Mueller would have had a good number of friends and associates. So it would yeah. be fairly it would be then fairly trivial, I would think, or straightforward mm-hmm. to get some of those associates to sit in front of the device and to have Mueller reveal things that only they and Mueller would know, right? They did this, right? <laughs> well, unfortunately, no. What happened yeah. was Meek had never actually spoken to Dr. Mueller himself. O'Neill and O'Neill alone had the ability, while alone, I'll mind you, to communicate with Dr. Mueller. What O'Neill did 
to create some sort of like an evidential standard, you know, to demystify this and say it's all true, was he took down some details from this discarnate voice claiming to be Dr. Mueller, who you heard introduced to someone who headed up a space program and all this, took down some details, some phone numbers of people who were his uh, his contemporaries and associates, and um, John G. Fuller, the author of The Ghost of 29 Megacycles, about the Spearcom story, who many probably heard from the Betty and Barney Hill story. Uh, he also wrote that book. He's kind of in the business, or was at least in, in the business of creating you know, cottage industries out of these paranormal stories. John G. Fuller noted that these were confirmed, but only some of them, and few of them in the presence of anyone other than George Meek while alone. I also have you note, I have cassette after cassette, I'm not kidding you, there were hundreds of cassettes of phone calls recorded with George Meek. George Meek was, he almost had like an audio cassette fetish. Everything he did, the guy was taping. Uh, so I have very mundane calls, very, uh, very intense calls. I have phone calls documenting every aspect of this guy's life. I have audio room recordings of when he'd have a conversation with his housekeeper, but no cassette yet. Now, there's a few boxes left to go, but no cassette yet of these phone calls confirming the information given to William O'Neill by this discarnate voice. So basically, he was like Richard Nixon. He taped everything except the 18 and a half he critical took my minutes. Joke. I was going to say he was. That was my joke, man. I was going to say he was Rich Nixon's bridge. Partner. Uh, no, wait, that was my joke. Oh, oh man. Now, now here's the thing, Stephen. You actually brought up a really interesting name. Mm-hmm. All right, and in reading some of the stuff that you sent us ahead of the the show. Mm-hmm. So John G. Fuller is known for a number of books around these topics. There is one book he wrote that I'm particularly taken with, and I've talked about a lot on this show, mm-hmm. which is Arigo, the Surgeon of the Rusty Knife. Now, ah. this is this is a case I know something about, and I'll say this to you, and this might now color your view of the Paracast, but for my money, personally, Arigo is the most compelling paranormal case of the 20th century. All right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't know what your own stance about it is, and this goes even beyond uh, Fuller's book. Uh, having grown up in South America, and people who listen to the show know this story. Uh, oh, I don't. Go ahead and tell me. Well, the very short version of it is right after I moved to Venezuela. I grew up in Venezuela. Um, my father worked on newsreels down there. Um, that was the industry he was involved with when we first moved down. We moved down in 1974. My father, among the many newsreel pieces he'd created in 74 and 75, one of them was about faith healing. Let's remember, Arigo died in 1971, so in 74, this was still relatively recent, and um, there was a whole spate of people who basically were bogus faith healers that were sort of taking the momentum that Arigo had created with what had been going on for 20 years of, of, of his situation, which is, is extremely well documented. And again, this has absolutely nothing to do with Fuller, Fuller wrote the definitive English book about Arigo, but the Arigo case in South America, very well known. And and again, we've specifically on this show talked about this and, in fact, had on a guy who had gone down to Brazil to research the, the most recent supposed incarnation of Dr. Fritz, this, uh, this soul that supposedly 
guided and worked through Arigo uh, mm-hmm. in, in a more contemporary vessel, as it were. And that's a whole other story. We had this guy, David Sonnenschein, who went down, married a Brazilian woman, spent time down there, befriended Arigo's sons, his family. The Arigo case is is almost really a, a completely standalone piece. So getting back to my father, my father had done a newsreel item about these bogus faith healers. And as a counterpoint to basically debunking these bogus guys, my father went and found a few of the people who had been cured by Arigo who were living in Caracas and interviewed them for this newsreel piece. And these were people who had, in some cases... Uh, yeah, in many cases with Arigo, these are a lot of these people were close to death, and he brought them back. Now the Arigo case is a, again, it's a really fascinating one. We've talked about it on the show, but for, for for me, besides the video evidence and the visual evidence around the Arigo case, which is is fairly substantial, you have I think the most compelling aspect of it was that Arigo couldn't take a dime for any of this. He made not one red cent on any of the work he did, and so. When you talk about the kind of bogus faith healers that, again, still exist in abundance in places like Brazil, in the Philippines, and we know of all of, you know, people who saw the, um, the movie about, uh, what's his name's life, Andy Kaufman's life, Man on the Moon, saw that yeah. sequence where, you know, he goes to the Philippines and he sees the guy palming the chicken liver. He, he knows, <laughs> he figures out it's bogus. But the Arigo case... Mm-hmm. Is absolutely, in, in my opinion, and not just my opinion, this has been, like I said, this is one of the best researched paranormal cases of the 20th century. The reason I bring all this up, Stephen, is that, you know, I don't want to um, get whatever Fuller did research-wise and book-wise around the Spiritcom device. You know, if you have issues with that, that's fine. I really want to make sure that doesn't bleed into the veracity of the Arigo case. And again, I don't know what mm-hmm. your feelings are about the Arigo case, but um, Arigo before any of the American press heard of him, before Fuller ever heard of him. This was a very beloved, respected man in South America. I mean, he did something amazing. And again, it's it's to this day, we still don't understand what happened. And I'm not going to use Arigo to support the idea that faith healing is, is necessarily a real thing. But in Arigo's case... There definitely seemed to be something going on. Oh, well, to be very clear, um, you know, making a cottage industry of something is not necessarily a bad thing. I was just stating that that was really his druthers. That's what he focused upon. Uh, secondly, there are some pretty interesting entangled associations between Fuller, Meek, and an individual named Andriha Puharic. Well, that's and, another uh, really interesting name that has it, a lot it is. of... And I just wanted, if I could just quickly defend that Fuller connection to the work, why I state it kind of with a question mark at the end. It's quite interesting that, you know, we'll get into Bihark perhaps uh, later or in a moment, but I think it's important to notice that an affiliate of George Meek had a documented association in this Arigo case. That affiliate was Fuller. There are entangled associations, for example, in the Puharch biography, autobiography, actually. It states that he collaborated, this is Puharch making this claim, that mm-hmm. Puharch collaborated on um, a book with John G. Fuller called Arigo, Surgeon of the Rusty Knife. Right. And um, the reason that's important is because they're down there in South America. 
with there are RCA, NASA connections, uh, other corporate connections. There's Fuller and there's Pew Harch, which for people who don't know, he's kind of like this Svengali-like character who seems like two people rolled into one. He's alternately uh, this kind, new age, you know, uh, proponent with a message of love and peace. And then he vacillates between that and giving papers on psychotronic warfare and how to, you know, control people. So I state this with with a question mark only because of some recent findings related to the Fuller archives. A fellow researcher contacted uh, Stanton Friedman, actually, regarding Friedman's knowledge of, uh, of John G. Fuller. Stanton Friedman, he knew of the Fuller collection and the materials pertain to all of Fuller's works except one that goes to 29 megacycles. I'm just saying it's curious. I'm not alleging anything. I'm just mm-hmm. saying it's curious. And to highlight how curious this missing material is, consider the detail of uh, the other materials listed by the archivist for all of Fuller's work up to the um, the Arrigo story, where Fuller first worked with Puharich and met George Meek by way of Puharich. There are everything from maps and tapes and notes and type drafts with profuse edits and printer marks and carbon copies and final drafts and galleys, even letters of correspondence. All of this rich detail about the bulk of the books written by Fuller, but nothing on the ghost of 29 megacycles. I just found that kind of curious. So So I have to throw it in the mix in case there are future findings related. Well, was this stuff just yanked out then on purpose? I don't really understand. I I would have to see the archives myself. I don't understand how that would be missing unless it's something that his uh, wife, who, again, gave these materials uh, to the Gottlieb Archive Research Center, uh, if she had some reason redacted the files, that would explain it. I don't know what her motivations would be, though. I, I didn't follow up on that yet. Hmm. You know, actually, I have no intention I'm... of doing so. Yeah, this is um, this is really interesting. Puharich is, is, is a very enigmatic and odd character. And, um, yeah, to say the least. Yeah, I've actually been in touch with his son, who lives in the Netherlands. We've been thinking about having him come on the show and talk about some of his father's work. But yeah, um, his involvement in the in the Fuller thing, in the Arigo case, uh, a little strange, you know. Yeah. And, you know, a little little odd. But then he he was getting involved with some odd things, and well, it, it sounds was. like this is confirmation of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, getting back to the book that Fuller wrote. Mm-hmm. About uh, about the Spiritcom stuff. I mean, what was his take? Did he think there's some veracity to this in this book? Well, if you, I mean, you know how Fuller wrote. He wrote with a kind of uh, a suspension of disbelief. You know, he if you, if you ask me, he didn't write in a way that was very academic. And this is not to pick on him. He was, he was a great writer. Um, I'm just stating a fact that it wasn't a dispassionate analysis. Let's put it that way. It was written like a popular pulp novel or adventure story. Mm -hmm. Yes, he tended to frame things in such a way as to create a sense of um, suspension, suspense and interest in the reader and tended to, I think, from his interaction with these guys, he must have known some of the things I know, tended to leave out certain details that must have been prima facie evidence against it. So it seemed that anything that was kind of, you know, exculpatory, you know, to their conviction, he would he would kind of toss to the side. And this is not, again, to pick on the man. It's, mm. uh, it's the state of fact about the contents of his work. So maybe the implication here is that he wrote a book to sell books, not necessarily mm-hmm. to do investigation. 
Yeah, yeah, precisely. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm saying, that it's, it's uh, the Spiritcom mystery, quote-unquote, is assailable on the evidential level. And uh, that's not too academies for anyone to understand that it's got a lot of evidence, and when you check it even beyond a, a cursory search, it, it tends to fall apart under its own weight. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of evidence. To coin a phrase, it's kind of researchable in that way, but the evidence itself is highly problematic. We have Dr. Stephen Rourke, and we're talking about communications from the other side, fact or fiction or who knows what. We'll have more on the other side of the Paracast. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheat. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox. But most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code Radio Day, that's Radio Day, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Yeti. Here we are back in our numero dos del Paracast, el show de lo paranormal. No, I'm sorry, I stuck into my Spanish. Uh, my, I, I, I can do that oh so easy. Maybe one day we'll do a Spanish paranormal show, except it won't be Gene. It'll be with his son, who speaks fluent Spanish. But we're here with Dr. Stephen Rourke, who, for some reason, has devoted a chunk of his life into looking into the attempts to communicate with the afterlife via technological means. And, you know, we touched a little bit upon EVPs. But, Stephen, this whole Spiritcom thing, I mean... You're, you're telling us that there are people who really believe that this was a real technology that really commun- allowed people to communicate with the deceased? Oh, sure. And that's through no accident, by the way. If this was the most publicized uh, event or work of its kind, when I select from the MetaScience archives, let's say I make a pile of all the press clippings, because mm-hmm. Meek employed a, pre- a press clipping service for everything related to uh, his announcements and his uh, his press releases, he was actually quite good at PR for his day, especially with such a subject. You you'd be able to cover a an entire room. I have a room that is 16 by 20, and with the exception of a small couch and a dresser, I covered the entire floor with press clippings. And this belies the knuckleheads who say, Spiritcom has nothing to do with EVP, or I'm working with a Frank's box, uh, this has nothing to do with Spiritcom. They simply lack the context to understand that the contemporary electronic voice phenomenon research, in other words, a type of techno mediumship, this is the assumption, that they are, they are assumed to be communicating with the deceased. That sounds exactly like what Spiritcom was doing, except Spiritcom claimed as a natural extension of the classical EVP work of those before it, 
it had made real-time two-way communication with the dead. So, again, the knuckleheads who say, oh, this, is not, this story is not anchored in anything, uh, my EVP research isn't anchored in Spiritcom, they simply lack a historical perspective. They haven't done a literature review. They haven't mm. done their research. Those are the facts. And, yes, there are people who believe that this happens every time they hear a blip on a tape recorder. As, as, as absurd as that sounds. And I'm not saying, and this has got to be made, the point's got to be made clear. I'm not saying that there's nothing to EVP. I wouldn't be bothering with any of this if I didn't think that there was some nugget of truth, again, echoing our first hour. There right. is some signal in that noise. And I think it's worth parsing. I think it's worth separating the wheat from chaff. And the first thing you've got to do is throw out the nonsense. And since this is essentially the foundational case on which the modern EVP mythos is built, if it needs to be deconstructed, it ought to be replaced with someone who's proposing and following best standards, like uh, like David Roundtree, for example. Well, let maybe look at that for a second here. What do you consider authentic research with authentic evidence? Well, in my proposal of best evidence standards, I also include some corroborating measures for, uh, let's say, audio ITC, instrumental transcommunication, evidence gathering. And a, and a big part of that is to revisit the rating system everyone's using. You know, this Constantine Rautova character, which if folks don't know, he was this, um, this Latvian psychologist, a Jungian, I believe, uh, who recorded thousands of these EVP snippets. And because he spoke seven languages, he was able to find some anchor in those other languages. He even called it polyglot. And using his seven languages, he would find a way to claim that these snippets of sounds approximating vocal utterances on audio tape were multilingual electronic voice messages. So here's like the first problem, right? I mean, if you just look at that and his rating scale, people are running around using the route of a rating scale which I think seriously needs to be revised so that there's some gold standard. By the way, there isn't even an agreed-upon definition for what EVP is. How about we start there instead of getting all fancy talk and academic? Just start there. We don't have a definition of what EVP is. Uh, and then, of course, you have the way of gathering it. That's problematic. You've got the issue of is it, is it a raw ambient recording or was there some noise intentionally inserted to uh i don't know what the claim is often white noise is given as a um you know a frequency for which the spirits can modulate and it's all of this pseudoscientific nonsense obviously adding white noise to your recordings is not going to make any evp clearer we have all these issues that is essentially what I'm saying needs to be revisited, and that's what I would consider some good research if someone just started thinking about that. How about we start there? Right, and, and I think it's important to state that in the case of anybody who's thinking about doing what any of us would consider serious EVP research, we have to start with the baseline of only deploying field recorders that are full frequency range, like a Zoom H2, that have no moving parts, that are fully solid state, so there's no problem of mechanical noise pickup inside of the microphones, and having at least three of these devices in the same space recording at the same time with some sort of a clapper as a synchronization lock, so that... Mm -hmm. You can see if these things are being replicated in all three devices 
or even see if there's an ability to create a three-dimensional spatial triangulation of where these things are occurring in a room. Just that alone, for me, would be a baseline, a technical baseline standard, right? Just that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when we had Zaffis on, he said, well, you know, people are doing this uh, with limited budget. Three Zoom H2 recorders are together, I think, about $400, all three of them. Yes. Yes. Okay. Also, probably, probably less, by the way, if you bothered to call and ask. Well, actually, uh, yeah. You know what? You could probably call up the guys over at uh, at Samsung Tech who who market Zoom, explain to them mm-hmm. what you're doing, and they probably would give you a break. In fact, I know if anybody was ever serious about doing this, folks, call me up. I know the guys over at Samsung Tech. I could arrange a deal. Okay, let's start there. But then mm-hmm. again, we also have to deal with the fact that when you're grabbing that audio. In the case of, let's say, the Zoom H2, you can be grabbing. That thing has four mic capsules in it. It can grab the equivalent of a 360-degree field. It, can, it essentially essentially can capture surround sound. That's right. And it's omni. Yeah. It's omni. It's omnidirectional. It's got these four mic capsules. And that mm-hmm. audio has to be saved as a wave file uncompressed. That's no right. Yes. No compression. And guess what? There is no one except one person. And mind you, he doesn't get as much attention as he ought to. Wonder why. There's only one person I know of. If there are others, they ought to get in touch with me via the email offered on SpearComStudy.com. But David Roundtree is the only guy using this level of technology, and he's derived at very different conclusions. Now, I'm not going to state his conclusion and speak for him. He's a guy you ought to have on at some future point. But his, his findings are very different from the, uh, you know, from the weekend uh, you know, graveyard skulkers. Very different when he takes oh, this I, kind of serious approach. I just remember one other thing. Additionally, if you're really serious about doing this, folks, even use the Zoom as the capture device, but forget about its built-in mic capsules. Go ahead and invest in some Earthworks high dynamic range real microphones for scientific work. I mean, if you're oh, going to yeah. do this, you, you know, you're, you want you want to capture. I was just teaching this to a class uh, 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 just the other day. Uh, the old term, and none of these kids had ever heard of it. Gigo, garbage in, garbage out. When you're in the acquisition mode acquire the full bandwidth of data as possible, not some compressed, compromised version. And if you're you're making statements about EVP and you're trying to capture EVP material, this this use of these like little uh, vocal transcription recorders like the Ghost Hunters guys do on TV is just preposterous. It's ridiculous. And, and oh, by the way, hey, TAPS guys, would you please frickin' learn how to use the normalization mode in your audio software, you morons? <laughs> All right, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. Rant it's over. Like they could use Audacity and you know and use that. I mean, you don't you don't even need fancy uh, software. It's true. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, Audacity is an open source audio editing program, Mac OS, Windows, Linux. So whatever yeah. your poison, you can download it and use it. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Get some real chops, guys. The only reason I brought this up is because first you brought up Zaphis, who 
immediately when I think of the guy with the, you know, the devil dolls and the possessed uh, objects, and all, <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. Yeah. It really sorry. is such a crazy thing. But um, yes. when I think of this Zaffis guy, the his polar opposite would be an individual doing all the things you said. And uh, there's only one guy even approaching that. So, again, you're right. right. That is the, the acquisition mode is really wanting. Let's put it that way. I'm going to ask you a question, Stephen. Why is it that people who do this research are not using the proper technological tools? Are they basically self-limiting, a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you do anything more than the basics, you won't get anything done and you won't get anything more than bogus results? Well, that, that kind of speaks to motivation, so I, I would be speculating. You know, if I'm allowed to speculate, uh, here goes. I think a lot of this does play with my psychobiological explanation for, you know, all these paranormal beliefs. You know, there's a good reason people have this wanting for an afterlife. It's kind of obvious. It's tough to face the issue of just simply dying and rotting or your, you know, your consciousness dissipates and your body degrades. So this is like the fundamental question. It's been, it's been a part of the human condition for about ever. So mm -hmm. really, this comes down to the motivations of the people pursuing this fundamental question in their own way. So rather than going to a church or something, uh, or in addition to going to a church, it's clear that they're pursuing this sort of answer. And um, I think there, there's a few things we need to know about. First, there's an issue of a self-sealing doctrine, which you've experienced with people when they come on and dogmatically state a case, and they know things that clearly they can't know to be true. They just know them, even though they should be describing those things as beliefs were they intellectually honest. There's that issue. So do I think people are going out and intentionally kind of confirming by way of crappy equipment? Are they perhaps confirming, uh, you know, predetermined, uh, conclusions? Yeah, probably. That's my speculation. There's also another issue. When people don't have these uncritical, you know, beliefs, they're essentially self-deceptions. And self-deceptions, to be maintained, they've got to be subject to protection against disconfirmation. So if someone were to use the best equipment, they might get a real answer they don't like. So I'm just speculating, yeah. but I'm thinking, yeah, that could have everything to do with it. They're afraid of negative results. You hear it on TV, you hear it on radio, cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days, but the real question is how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call one 866 596 6134. That number again, 1 866 596 6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two G's. Goldbug.com. 
Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We have Dr. Stephen Rourke, who is not afraid of negative results. He just wants to know what's going on. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I'd say it is, sure. This whole thing about the spear comes, Stephen. So mm-hmm. they come up with this one guy, Mueller, who they claim they're communicating with. I mean, is that it? Did they did they attempt to communicate with anybody else? Yeah, they were. In fact, it's kind of interesting. There were others. Um, in fact, the first person O'Neill had supposedly made communication with via a Spearcom device was not George J. Mueller, you know, Dr. Mueller. It was, in fact, uh, another character who had supposedly lived in the 1800s. Um, and despite that, this person was using words like robot. Uh, kind of, <laughs> kind of interesting. That's problematic. So, yeah, there were others, but they weren't quite as clear or interesting and they certainly weren't of the same duration. And as you can hear, clear is a relative term when it comes to <laughs> the Spiricom audio with all of this audio camouflage going on with the grating tones and the electrolarynx sound going on. Uh, so, yeah, there were others. And quite interestingly, my research has extended, you know, from O'Neill, knowing he's a schizophrenic, by the way, this is documented by way of health records and death certificate of the Torrance State Medical Hospital. Uh, the actually is a mental hospital uh, where he died in care for his schizophrenia and some other psychoses. So I decided to look more closely into the area of schizophrenia, and I found that it's common that schizophrenics call these imaginary friends or you know enemies or frenemies, these imagined beings around them. It's common for some reason for them to call these folks Fred and Doc. In fact. When the literature states this as a fact, they refer to a longitudinal study of data collected from many uh, psychologists. So for some reason, those two names emerge. Well, quite interestingly, the first person O'Neill had made communication with was named Fred Engstrom. And the second person was named Doc. And then the third was named Dr. Mueller. (laughs) <laughs> so Doc Doc Nick was the second. So it seems that he's he's following this kind of classic psychosis, living it out through this technology. And I I can't tell you the answer if if O'Neill was perhaps let's say uh, if he was in possession of latent schizotypy, like that was awakened or activated by the use of this technology i don't really know schizotypy is by the way is a it's a psychological concept which describes a continuum of personality characteristics um related to psychoses in particular schizophrenia that's important to mention because there's two schools of thought you know that everything's a derangement or there's a kind of continuum and i think o'neill was really functional so he falls on the continuum somewhere and I don't know if he was driven to madness by this rabbit hole trip or if he kind of was there already and and would have been doing, you know, puppet shows alone in his room and just kind of happened upon this technology. I, I can't answer that would be speculation as well. Again, keep coming back to this, this then this, this whole thing about Mueller. So basically at no time did they ever, were they, were they, were they ever able to prove that the supposed voice coming through this device would have been Mueller in terms of revealing things to associates and friends 
that the the Spiritcom creators would never know. I mean, that mm. proof never happened, right? No, that never happened. Again, it's only a very obtuse case stated in the Ghost of 29 Megacycles where, you know, there's this issue of, you know, did they confirm? Did they not confirm? Uh, Meek supposedly confirmed two but didn't confirm the other three. These were phone numbers of people who, you know, had top secret clearance, which is not that rare, so I don't know why that would have been an issue. Uh, O'Neill himself had Army experience, um, so he could have very well have known these people himself. Uh, secondly, um, uh, O'Neill making contact with this supposed, you know, NASA scientist and program head. As it turns out, there really was a Dr. Mueller who, you know, headed up the space program. In fact, he, at least organizationally, is considered the father of the Apollo program. And um, what I mean organizationally is, you know, he headed up uh, the project. Now, this Mueller, by the way, is, as it turns out, not the same Mueller that uh, O'Neill claims by way of social mm. security number he received from this deceased NASA scientist. Yeah, this other deceased NASA scientist, as it turns out, this dead guy on the Spiritcom didn't know his own resume because he mm. never worked for NASA. Some other Mueller did. So, you know, in the days before the Internet, I suppose it would have been quite easy to confuse these two Mueller's. Um, and I was, in fact you know, down that two Mueller's rabbit hole for quite a while. And there's some interesting documents that are, to me, quite unexplainable um, that lend a closer look, really, that lend a perspective that a closer look is needed at this whole Spiritcom possible conspiracy angle. And what I mean by whoa, that is... Whoa, whoa. You said the word. Oh, yeah. The C word, conspiracy. Yeah, what I like to call the conspiracy theory, and it is just a model. I shouldn't even call it a theory. You know, a theory is like a well-established principle where this is this is barely a hypothesis, but it requires some, you know, closer looking at, in my opinion. When I decided to take a closer look at establishing the existence of the real George Mueller, I uh, performed everything from a consensus record search to... Uh, tracking down his resume, you know, confirming he did work for Cornell, that he did work for uh, Picatinny Arsenal, that he had military ties. All that's true. And it was also true that the last place he worked, according to, you know, O'Neill and documented in the Fuller book, the last place he worked uh, before coronary arrest was Orange Coast College in California. And I confirmed this by way of the OCC faculty, you know, manual from fall of 64 through fall of uh, 66. Okay, all that's true. The one thing that's not true is that he worked for NASA. And yet you heard in track one we played, George Meek introduces Spiritcom and the Dr. Mueller as uh, the same guy who headed up a NASA program, an Apollo program specifically, I believe he said. So this becomes very problematic because there are two Mueller's. They even look similar. This is what's really wild, that the two Mueller's, you know, if you if you take a close look at their facial composition and some features, I kind of ham-fistedly used some facial recognition software, and, you know, point for point, uh, it's pretty conclusive. They look similar. Now, I'm not stating they're one and the same. This, this would not be true. What I'm stating is it's an awfully strange coincidence. Pile on top of that coincidence yet another. George Mueller, who died while working at Orange Coast College, 
he worked with someone named Dr. Patricia Cubis at the college, a very small college at the time, I mind you, with a faculty of less than a hundred, uh, with a building directly across, uh, not a campus, but simply uh, uh, across a small walkway. Uh, they would have simply had to have known each other at faculty meetings and other things like this. He worked with this individual, and Dr. Patricia Cubis wrote a book with Mark Macy called Conversations Beyond the Light. And in this book, they document all this Orange Coast College business, but they never mention that Patricia Cubis worked with this Dr. Mueller. Concomitantly, by the way, I mean, during the same time period, this is not like, you know, she worked there 10 years before he even showed up. They worked there at the same time. And this is a book by Macy, which advances all the factual, you know, events in the Spiritcom story and especially this this Dr. Mueller. All right. So that's a strange uh, uh, detail. So I decide I need to know who this Mueller is and who he knew. So I decide, you know what, if there's a NASA Mueller, let's find out more about him. So I contact the uh, Johnson Space Center. I get someone on the phone who's kind enough to copy for me the literature review, in other words, everything this George Mueller, this Apollo space program, Dr. Mueller, all the things he wrote. And quite interestingly, there are some things redacted from the documents. Um, like, for example, his middle initial is crossed out whenever it appears. Hmm. And that's the one thing that was different between the Apollo Mueller and the Spiritcom Mueller. So folks are following this. It appears that someone had made a concerted hmm. effort to delete in the official record anything that would have distinguished the two Mueller's. I don't know what that means. People, yeah, what does that mean? Why would they? So someone specifically did that so that people would be confused. Right. It's a kind of disinformation. It took me an entire year, by the way, to pursue this, this two Mueller's or one Mueller angle. Uh, so a year later, I find out I've been disinformed either accidentally or intentionally. I find out that I've decided to pursue like a, again, a model's type of version of the investigation. And, you know, one of these models would have to be under the umbrella of, of psyops or psychological operations. Now, I was being pushed toward this psyop angle the whole time because this Puharch character kept poking his head up, and he's got quite an interesting background. And Puharch, by the way, has a connection to EVP that should be stated at the outset. This is quite interesting that this route of a character who was collecting EVP, but kind of dispassionate about publishing a book, you know, him knowing how this could have compromised his his uh, his professional appearance, let's say. Um, it's interesting that Puharich visits Rautova the summer before the book is released, and uh, almost as if, you know, he was programmed or something, he then is passionate about EVP and goes forward. This is the same, I call this the Puharich phenomenon, when he shows up and Yuri Geller is not quite sure who he is or what powers he has, but he leaves a single meeting with Puharich, and Geller knows you know, he's got everything from, you know, E.T. connections to the psi abilities. And Puharch was this incredibly charismatic uh, and, again, simultaneously, you know, boring and academic individual. So he's an interesting character. So he pops his head up frequently enough that I would say, this guy, Puharch, has got his fingers in enough of this pie that I think he might have tainted the, uh, you know, the taste. So that's that's the look I'm taking. I'm not saying any of this is confirming of any conspiracy. I'm simply stating there is a model I'm pursuing 
the spirit conspiracy model, uh, and it's one that involves a few psyop models. One of them, by the way, may answer this strange matter of the Johnson Space Center records, and that one is namely a corporate espionage model, or you know something akin to like a a Howard Hughes type of character assassination model, where someone would essentially connect you to someone of the same name and then destroy their character so that in the public mind at large, or at least enough newspaper accounts, the mistake occurs where people would believe the George Mueller of the Apollo program was dabbling in communication with the dead. <laughs> Sounds Why? like something right out of an Orwell novel. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We've got Dr. Stephen Rourke. And we've gravitated from communicating with dead people to real live conspiracies and conspiracy theories. And of course, the one question I would ask is, what's the purpose of that? Why confuse these two Dr. Mullers? Well, again, this is speculation, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll perhaps I'll perhaps state it more clearly. Meek had defense contract connections lending the Spiritcom story to, again, what I kind of summarize as the corporate espionage PSYOP model. Further on this model, it's interesting that the operator of the Spiritcom device, Bill O'Neill, um, had employment with uh, Hughes Aircraft. Hughes was notorious, by the way, for his PSYOPs against friends and enemies alike. Uh, so, and lastly on this model, it's interesting to point out that Meek's Metascience was funded in great part by McDonald grant monies of McDonald Douglas fame. So I asked the question, could the insinuation of disinformation into the Spiricom project, namely the wrong Mueller as the discarnate entity, could that have been a plot to have at the ready a scandal resultant to the McDonald funding, which might help a competitor win defense contracts away from the paranormal-inclined McDonald's. Mm -hmm. So I know it's, it, is, uh, it is absurd in one way to make this claim, and yet this is the corporate espionage model, which you can find hundreds of examples of. It's uh, character assassination by proxy is what I've heard it called. So basically it's a corporate dirty trick. Yeah, and it's quite a cheap one. You know, you fund an, an entity you can control, you insert mud into their cra already crazy evidence, and have at the ready all these people to be kind of smeared by simple association. You have that uh, kind of bullet in the chamber. Now, I'm not saying the bullet was ever fired. Uh, clearly it wasn't. There wasn't some scandal internationally about this Mueller. There wasn't any other such thing. But that doesn't mean that uh, the makings of such a scandal were not at the ready. This is, in fact, common 
in such types of espionage and psychological operations to have have these models, you know, at the ready to be employed. And you put the PR machine into action. You program the public mind with the message you want. And by the time, let's say, the correct Mueller comes out and corrects the record, everyone already thinks he's a jackass and doesn't want to be associated with him. You follow? It's that simple. Wouldn't a simple sex scandal do? Well, would have, yeah, but uh, that was kind of Jolly and West's, you know, MK Ultra bag, you know, LSD the John, and uh, and hope he goes nuts in the streets while he's running naked. I suppose that would have been simpler, but again, that's not Puharch's style. You know, Puharch was the, if there's any father in the U.S. of psychological operations, uh, it's him. You know, he, he wrote... Uh, uh, he's got ties to remote viewing, UFOs, the New Age mess. He's practically the father of the New Age message with his communications with the Nine, the supposed Nine. Uh, oh, the wrote, Nine. Uh, yeah, he wrote a 1952 paper, presented it, by the way, at a secret Pentagon meeting. It was called An Evaluation of the Possible Uses of Extrasensory Perception in psychological warfare. That didn't even mean that Puharch necessarily believed in extrasensory perception. It simply means that he could use a deeply held belief that something was true as a psychological weapon. This is right. kind of nuanced for folks, um, but nevertheless, that is you know the record of Puharch, in, in addition to many other strange happenings around this guy. You know, this is his turkey farm in Austin, New York, uh, where he had these gifted children called space kids. He trained their psychic abilities and claimed they received messages from aliens. Having one team even uh, claiming that they practiced remote viewing this uh, group of kids. So he almost, you know, gave birth to the modern remote viewing or star child, uh, you know, movement. It's, well, now, well, it's wait really a minute. Uh, re rewind for a minute. A turkey farm in Austin? Yeah, actually, uh, in the mid-1970s, uh, he ran what is called a complex in Asing called the Turkey Farm. That was the nickname in the uh, in the FOIA release documents. In the summer of 1975, Puharch assembled what I recall to be around 20 children from the ages of 9 to late teens. Uh, hmm. And he, interestingly, this is great, he called them uh, Gellerlings or Spaces. Oh, oh, God. Yes, yes. Uh, this is in Levy's book, by the way. I'm, I'm turning to page 166 right now, where he says, Puharch trained their psychic abilities and claimed they received messages from aliens. Yeah, and so the one team, by the way, who claimed that uh, um, he could uh, practice remote viewing, some of their assignments included political targets like the Kremlin and the White House. This is kind of, <laughs> this is kind of interesting. Now, again, I'm not saying... There was any ESP or actually remote viewing going on. What I'm stating is that a master of the PSYOP like Puharich would have known that this is not about the truth of the matter. It's about psychological warfare principles and using a deeply held belief as a psychological weapon. Oh, and you can, almost, you can almost see the advantage of controlling the New Age message. You know, this is a group of people... Um, well, this is a whole other conversation. I, I hesitate to even... To yeah, no, that. this is... Well, this is really interesting, and it's making me think... I have to... Uh, I haven't typed to him in months, but I think maybe I need to get Puharich's son on the show, because this is... Yeah, I, I think you should, and what Puharich called this, by the way, was uh, social-spiritual 
psychological operations. Now, again, Puharich being a kind of analytical guy, I'll close with this. I don't, I don't think, um, I'm going to say this, I don't mean a single sentence. I'll, I'll close with the thought that Puharich uh, didn't necessarily believe PSYOPs to be intrinsically negative, or else he wouldn't have obviously dedicated the bulk of his life to it in the form of, uh, again, these, these uh, evaluation of possible uses of uh, of paranormal beliefs and as psychological weapons, you know the, the social spiritual psyops business. It, if you look at again the analogs, the parallels, echoing the first hour. If you look at how the UFO community is heavily influenced by disinformation disseminated by well-known authors and lecturers who are in, in essence known to be members of intelligence organizations like what they call the Avery and all this. The so I, I contend the belief structure of thousands of gullible New Agers was manipulated by individuals claiming to channel information, namely from the Nine or what Puharch described alternately as the nine principles of God. So, I mean, even if we were to ignore blatant historical inaccuracies of, uh, of some of these nine messages and what I believe was thinly veiled racism, if you really read carefully, emanating from this nine or this divine group of celestial beings, uh, the military and intelligence background of Puharch, the founder of the nine cult, uh, should be sufficient to question anything he's involved in. That's just my take. I'm not assassinating his character. I'm simply saying this guy was in a lot of hanky stuff. This is an intimate of uh, Ira Einhorn, you know. Uh, this is a guy giving papers on psychological warfare as early as 1952. This is the guy who brought us Yuri Geller. This is the guy who predates the birth of EVP with a visit to the man who popularized it, he visits route over the summer before the release of his book. It just really is strange. I'm not saying we can pin any of this down, but Puharch served as a military officer uh, for a time even at the U.S. Army Chemical Center right here where I live in Maryland. And uh, at the time, the center was conducting LSD experiments, as we noted uh, earlier, the MK Ultra mention. You know, Puharch was working with the CIA's Sidney Godlieb, an evil man, on the development of directed energy mind control techniques. And at the time the nine were initially channeled, uh, Puharich had perfected this voice-to-skull technology, essentially. He's even the guy that developed the first microchip tooth implant, as crazy as that sounds. It's got a patent number. He did that for the CIA. He was under CIA contract. He fell out of favor eventually with the intelligence community, uh, community, but like they say, you're never out. Well, you know uh, something, when you talk about this and you go back to people in the UFO field who may have been involved in disinformation, you know, we go back to all the early figures in the UFO research who had military connections like Major Donald Kehoe. He mm -hmm. loaded up his organization, NICAP, in the 1950s and 60s with the former head of the CIA and loads of people like that. And then you look at some of the cases, and this goes back to John G. Fuller. The Interrupted Journey, the Barney and Betty Hill case. And you think, well, wait a minute, seems credible, although a lot of it is very different from other so-called abduction cases. And then you look at their friends. The friends they keep were all in the military. Mm, very good point. And that's, I think it's precisely the point I'm making for uh, an argument in support of, not saying conclusively, but an argument in support of pursuing you know, the psychological operations model. Think about 
think about these connections to the psychoacoustic uh, devices, what is alternatively called voice-to-skull technology. Puharich had the capability of projecting voices into the minds of, quote-unquote, channelers who believe they were in communication with a divine source of super-intelligent extraterrestrial beings. Now, what do you think is more likely, that the nine were real and they came to warn the Earth against impending doom, and the channelers really were hearing the voices of the nine, or is it much more likely that a man who was the father of psychological operations, who had patents on psychoacoustic devices, projected voices into their heads? It's much more likely to conclude the latter. I'm not saying I have evidence of it, but it's quite interesting that everyone he's around hears these voices, and sometimes they receive Spiricom-like voice calls. Oh, yes. man. Spiricom-like phone calls. Uh, if we go to track 13, you can hear a Dr. Jack Sarfati revisiting the phone call he received, which he called the metallic voice call. I guess we'd have to call that. Oh, we've heard of this. Hey, Gene, play that, yeah. would you? Okay, let's have track 13 here, and we're going to see whether lucky track 13 proves to be a revelation. Uh, yeah, when I was 13, um, I received... Um, uh, what I remember is a single phone call from a cold, metallic, mechanical voice said it was a computer on board a spacecraft from the future, and then I was going to meet the others in 20 years. And, uh, you know, I never took it that seriously, but uh, then 20 years later, when I'm a physics professor at San Diego State with Fred Allen Wolf, uh, uh, I uh, get involved with this uh, Uri Geller uh, SRI project, and, you know, I met uh, all kinds of weird people, like uh, Hal Putoff, Russell Tog, Uri Geller got involved in uh, you know that kind of CIA operations, but I didn't realize it at the time. So it was a very bizarre coincidence. Now, also on track 14, Sarfati uh, overtly mentions this metallic voice phenomenon and intelligence work. That's a quote. Go ahead and play track 14 to get further context. The strange thing about that experience, though, is that. Uh, I only remember one phone call, but my mother remembered three weeks of phone calls in which I was on the phone for hours and hours and walking around glassy-eyed and very abstracted, and I have no memory of that at all, so I had the missing time, okay? And um, uh, the metallic voices, uh, you know, it's a key theme, again, in Jim Schnabel's book with these physicists uh, around 1973, in fact, 1974, the physicists from uh, Lawrence uh, uh, Livermore Lab, they're weapons physicists, they were investigating some of this weird stuff, and there were, you know, weird metallic voices there. Uri Geller talks about it, uh, Andrea Parrish talks about it, and uh, the metallic voice uh, phenomenon is not only, uh, I, it didn't only happen to me, it's happened to a lot of people who are involved in intelligence work. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say something as tactic as booyah, but, you know, the truth is, <laughs> I think that, that kind of says it all. Here is Sarfati, by the way, a very offbeat physicist, a, an absolute genius, if you ask me, as almost a prototypical, and I do mean prototypical, uh, space kid or Gellerling. And his timeline would have fit precisely with some of uh, Pugh Harch's possible uses of these um, uh, capability of projecting voices, uh, not necessarily into the minds because the mother supposedly heard this phone call. But the mentions of missing time, the mention of a cold, metallic, Spearcom-like voice, it's just undeniable that this, this Pugh Harch guy is like a shadow lurking everywhere. There's any possibility to insert himself into a paranormal subject. And sometimes he's actually like the 
the bearer and father of an entire movement. You know, he is the modern-day New Age movement. He is its predecessor, let's put it that way, with these messages of the Nine and, and all this insanity. And for the folks who don't necessarily know about the Nine, that, again, that also is, like, is, a, is a whole other show, but I'll give it as quickly as I can. Some of, most, uh, some of America's most uh, notable families took place in a series of what were essentially seances. Uh, they were happening in Glen Cove, Maine. And this event wouldn't even be uh, important had it not been for the um, organization of these seances under um, an army captain who was responsible for paranormal, chemical, and biological research during the Korean War. And this is a man who worked for Dr. Lawrence Layton, among others, uh, who was the father of the only convicted Jonestown murderer, just as an aside. Uh, this is, of course, I'm talking about the Nine. The message of the Nine, this seance, people sitting around from notable families, all orchestrated by Andrea Puharich. The message of the Nine was essentially that it was an extraterrestrial force hovering over the Earth in a flying saucer that it intended to guide uh, a generation of human beings uh, in expanded consciousness. And, you know, this was something, by the way, Puharich very much took to heart, apparently. He spoke about it constantly, wrote about it constantly. So he was still talking about it up until his involvement with SRI, Defense Department contracts. It would almost seem tangential, but it's just interesting how these connections come around. Um, the original members of the seance that contacted the Nine included Arthur Young, the father-in-law of one of the Kennedy assassination personalities, and uh, Ruth Payne. Uh, it was also to Arthur Young that Pugh Harch would take Geller, Einhorn, and Dr. Safardi, who you just heard from, it was to Arthur Young, a participant in the Nine, the Round Table of the Nine, that Puharich would take Geller, Einhorn, the Unicorn Killer, and Sarfati 20 years after this uh, original seance. It's you interesting, know, Stephen, it's very interesting here that a lot of the early history you're saying is almost part and parcel of the original contactee movement about the benevolent Space Brothers in the 50s, and very much even exopolitics today. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheap. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox. But most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code Radio Day. That's Radio Day, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
we have Dr. Stephen Rourke. And we started from life after death, and now we're getting into all sorts of potential conspiracies. Yeah, and I have to agree with you about the uh, about the history this is anchored in. And if people are just kind of running around believing something without fully knowing its historical context, um, that really is, it's, it's a formula for disaster. And I think it needs to be stressed that there's a cautionary tale, I mean, a very concrete cautionary tale that comes out of the Spearcom story, putting all the psychological operations models aside, getting back into, you know, the psychology of belief and where that can take you. Poor George Meek died a penniless man who had bequeathed the entirety of his estate to a housekeeper who had convinced him she was channeling his dead wife. No. Um, you know, so so these these ideas really they go from from woo woo to having absolute concrete object you know lesson type of consequences. This is not stuff that people should just run around holding as beliefs unless I think they really look into it. And maybe that's a good segue into perhaps a discussion of how information theory and the psychology of belief really plays into. You know, the question of how much is anomaly and how much is anomalous perception and thinking. Well, you know, before you do that, Stephen, I just, in, in this whole discussion, something that kept coming back to me uh, about the Spiritcom, uh, one of, uh, or it was a couple of our forum participants had brought up a book. I don't know if you've ever heard of this book called The Vertical Plane by a guy by the name of Ken Webster. Really interesting book. And, just very briefly, I ended up uh, finding a copy of this book and had it shipped to me from it was either Australia or New Zealand. It's a bit of a collector's item, but the the synopsis is that supposedly this uh, this fellow and his girlfriend had this computer. And this is like 1984, um, very early early computer they had in their little house, and all of a sudden messages they would go away and they would come back and there'd be like files, text files saved on disk. Mm -hmm. Supposedly communications from somebody who who claimed to be living, I guess, in the same space, but hundreds of years before, and was communicating in 17th century uh, English. I mean, basically, it, it it was really fascinating. These people didn't seem to have any reason to make this up. Fascinating book. I read this book and I thought, now this is this is really compelling, and it, it has some similarities to like this whole Spiritcom thing and that, you know, you have this like technology that's being put to use as a way to sort of bridge space time for all we know. And look, we, we spend so much time on the Paracast sort of tearing things down, but for all we know, there might be some sort of a technological method to create communication between these realms of existence. It is, it's possible. I mean, I, I'm willing to say that because of something that I, you know, a story I told here on the Paracast about something that happened when my mother died, where I feel, strongly feel, that she was extremely successful in giving me a direct physical sign, a manifestation of continuance of identity. And it's a long story. We don't go, need to go into it into it now. But for me, it was sort of this def, this definite, absolute proof, and it was physical in nature that after she passed away, in some some way, she was still there, basically. And you know, I've I've told this, this story on 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 the show, and you know, people can believe it or not believe it. It doesn't really matter. It was something that she and I had talked about before she died. 
And she went and did this. And she did something in a way that, you know, and again, there's a whole episode devoted to it, but it was extremely creative and it was designed so that I would have no doubt, absolutely no doubt in my mind that it was her. The point is, you know, maybe there is a way, possibly, to have some sort of a technology that can give us an insight into whatever the continuance that lies beyond this reality is, whether or not the Spiritcom was the embodiment of that technology. It doesn't sound to me like like it was. The thing is, you, 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 you mentioned that there's this little bit of signal in this noise that you find compelling. And I wonder, mm-hmm. we don't have much time left, but I'm wondering if you'd expound upon that a little bit. I mean, what cases have you seen where you feel confident that there is something going on? Well, yeah, this would kind of be like, you know, file under rationalization for investigation because it is kind of, you know, it's kind of fringy. Um, So uh, to put it in its most plain terms, you know, the gross features of this phenomenon are that there's a huge and expansive data set, the bulk of it explainable. There's that percentage to me which holds high interest. I'm not stating one way or another as to any Mm -hmm. belief about the subject. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. The only cases, quote-unquote, I've seen, Cook and Macbeth, I think they I think they followed through nicely with a particular piece of research they did in Ogden, Utah. And then really the only other person, again, that I've seen any standards of research and protocol followed is um, David Roundtree. I mean, that's not to say that there aren't others, and that's not to say that changes anything about this signal in the noise. It's... Um, right. It's simply impossible to me that all of these would be faked. Now, many of them, again, they do sound like vocal utterances. That does not mean they are. So you must dismiss that. There's the issues of crosstalk that you mentioned. Once you subtract everything away, there remains, if not a core, at least a fringe data set, which is compelling to me. And that's why I look into it. Also, it needs to be mentioned, by the way, that EVP itself is holding interest. I mean, I don't really do the whole ghost thing and all this. EVP itself is interesting because it's well-suited, one, to a standards-based best practices approach to evidence gathering. You mentioned how really cheap good recording equipment would be. Two, it's particularly well-suited for consideration as what's called perinormal um, because the phenomenon is not generally subject to three conditions most often mistaken as, quote-unquote, the paranormal. Those three conditions are, one, sleep paralysis. You know how problematic that is in UFO, heat abduction research. Two, associated hypnagogic hallucination, uh, which, by the way, is so concomitant with sleep paralysis as to be almost one and the same phenomenon. And three, a subsequent sensed presence, which is in the fancy psychology books, it's called a, a, a type of aberrant somatosensory. I say this perinormal argument is interesting because perinormal phenomenon that describes unknown forces which at first appear to be paranormal and are later verified scientifically because peri means in the vicinity of rather than para meaning above and beyond normal so uh, we have examples of perinormal a significant modern example is emf right at one time emf was debatable from a scientific perspective but later was proven to be real and is currently right. accepted, obviously, by the scientific community. So that mystery was undone, uh, made the transition from para 
to perinormal mm-hmm. through really conquering the measurability problem. And this comes back to the technology issue. It might just be a measurability problem where we're not discerning signal from noise to the point of creating a data set that contributes to any thinking and literature and consideration of the phenomenon. We're really muddying it up with a bunch of nonsense, and it's so hard to distinguish signal from noise. That's where I start. Well, I guess it becomes really complicated when you may have the government or people working for the government just trying to muddy the pool here. Oh, sure. Yeah, and this is common, of course, if there's any benefit to be had by somehow directing adherence of the paranormal. It's almost that it would be done if it could be done. And we, again, you just don't need to look too far. Go directly to uh, the UFO research community. It's clearly a useful <laughs> laboratory. You think about this. This is what it is to these PSYOP experts. The UFO research community is a useful laboratory in which to observe the effects of propaganda and disinformation because it's driven in large part by an intent to expose the cover-up. The same thing goes for the New Age. The same thing goes for these paranormal enthusiasts. So that's the first place you start is, of course, distinguishing evidentially signal from noise, distinguishing motivationally signal from noise, and trying to determine how much is anomaly and how much is anomalous perception or thinking. Yeah. Well, I can imagine here this is going to be a very complicated thing for you to do. But having taken us so far, Stephen, taken us so far on this journey, and we only have maybe five, six minutes left, where Mm -hmm. do we go from here? Well, I I suggest if anyone is serious about it that, you know, they model the way. I have since 2005, I've had posted a paper called Best Evidence Standards and Corroborative Measures. You know, I have yet, no one's taken me up on it, but there it sat all along. It's a pretty good model for, um, you know, uh, uh, Best Evidence Standards adherence, a collection, a gold standard for a definition. You know, let's start there. I would propose that people start thinking about what this EVP thing is. If your definition is biased, you can imagine the research is going to be. You know, so don't call EVP discarnate voices of the dead. That's kind of a biased definition if you're trying to be intellectually honest. So the uh, a gold standard for things like best practices, a gold standard definition, and more importantly, we need to look at what I kind of collectively call a a psychobiological explanation for the creation and perpetuation of paranormal thinking or paranormal ethos, just like the ethos that undergirds the Spiritcom story and all subsequent EVP and ITC and paranormal stuff. The adoption of fringe ideas as a belief system needs to be looked at. I'm not saying that people are crazy. I'm saying it needs to be looked at, because if you're not thinking about your own thinking, you can't really think about anyone else's. And this is the problem, that people are adopting what I like to call extra cognitive beliefs as conclusions. They're not thought through. They go selectively to the evidence. I'm sure this is a problem you see in the stuff you deal with on a weekly basis, too. So what I did was uh, I decided to take it to the next level and try to formalize all of this into a, a kind of catchphrase, and I called it paramimetics, just to borrow from you know Blackmore and all the folks who are dealing with the idea of infectious memes. This is a metaphor. No, we're not talking about an actual virus. We're talking about infectious ideas that spread, reinforce themselves against things like disconfirmation. And this would go a long way to explain information theory. You know, the, the meme idea is a very powerful idea. So 
I took this meme idea and said, let's look at the adoption of fringe ideas as a belief system. Let's look at how these um, ideas are spread and reinforced in believers. And when I did, I came up with not so much a grand unified theory of the paranormal, but at least uh, what hints at a unified theory of paranormal thinking. And again, this is not to say people are are crazy just for thinking they heard a voice or something. This is not at all it. But it does it does look at the finer points of things like EVP being, you know, generally brief and requiring lots of listenings to discern them as something resembling intelligible speech. It opens the listener, uh, makes them prone to the verbal transformation effect, for example, or or apophenia or auditory paradelia. Uh, and everyone has these abilities. You know, little kids see dragons in clouds. That is visual paradelia as an example. To make a- It's like a Rorschach test, huh? Isn't it, though? Yeah, this is like audio Rorschach. It's a good way to put it. And the verbal transformation effect, to put a finer point on that, it's, it's, it's anchored in Skinner's research as far back as 1936. The verbal transformation effect is experienced commonly as illusory changes in repeated words that identify with the listener. You know, and so auditory stimuli plus, if we were to put this into like an equation, auditory stimuli of this type plus any of these explanations like verbal transformation effect, apophenia, and auditory paradelia, I think equal an explanation for the spread and reinforcement of paranormal notions like this is communication with the dead. I've heard you guys talk about, I think it was in the context of alien abductions or something, uh, about how people ordinarily would have nothing to gain by sharing paranormal experiences with the general public and the public at large. And you're absolutely correct. However, what needs to be explained is why the inverse is true regarding the sharing of paranormal experiences with a population of enthusiasts. Well, it seems simple at the outset. You're going to say the notion that people are having nothing to gain is belied by really two empirical observations. One, the compulsion to retell the story. And two, confabulation or one-upsmanship, to put it more plainly. So I think that needs an explanation before we can say, how real are these infectious ideas being spread and reinforced? as really extra cognitive conclusions that become beliefs. Dr. Stephen Roy, check more of his information at spiricomstudy.com. And by the way, we have a link under his name at theparacast.com, so you can check out all of that and more. Dr. Stephen Rourke, thanks for joining us on the Paracast. Thanks, boys. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.